we thank you um, just for this morning, the opportunity that we have to gather as a people. Lord, and as we gather, we do so around your word. Um, Lord, we pray that you would allow this word that you have given us, which we believe and declare to be eternal and true, Lord, we ask that you would take it and that you would write it on our hearts, that it would shape us as a people, Father. We love you, and we ask these scenes in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite sort of seasons of life was high school. I really enjoyed myself in high school, really enjoyed myself. Maybe for you, that's not the case. Uh, but for me, it was, um, you know, it was a time of, you know, when I look back at it, and oftentimes I find myself just around family, which is good, where I want to be. I think to myself, where am I? Do I have any friends, you know? In high school, I had friends. So it was sort of this time of life where I thrived socially. I was involved in different sports and teams and different activities that could, you know, kind of take up my time. And really, I think the reason why I enjoyed high school so much was because of the sort of carefree nature by which I approached high school. Part of the goal that I had in high school was to see how few of classes I could actually attend in a day. I would not recommend that approach if you're a high school student here today. If you're one of my high, if you're my high school student, especially, don't you know, don't do that, right? But for me, high school, it was enjoyable, and I remember a message that I, I always heard while I was in high school, and it, it, I kind of got sick of it after a while. And it was simply this: you only get high school if you do it right, at least. You only get to go through it one time, right? It's four years of your life that you don't get to go back and redo. So, two things. One, enjoy it while you have it. Participate in all that high school has to offer. Get involved, meet friends, enjoy it. Have fun. Only get it once. But there was a second part to this message. It was this. It was the part I didn't like so much. Have fun, but also what you do in high school starts to matter, right? It starts to count. Maybe elementary school, junior high, you could kind of float through those. Again, I wouldn't recommend doing that. But potentially you could. But once you get to high school, how you perform in your grades, how you retain information and the habits that you build to study and to learn, it all starts to matter, right? Because what you do with those four years in many ways can kind of shape what opportunities you have beyond those five years. So while you should be in high school having fun, you should also be careful because those four years can greatly impact how you spend your future. Folks, life is very, very similar, right? Life, the life that we have been given and have been called to live, very same message could be said. We pass through this world just one time. And what we do with this life, while we have it, determines where we spend eternity, our future destiny. We are not left alone, thankfully, to just sort of figure it out, right? The God that we come here this morning, the God that we serve, the God that we worship is a God who speaks to us. He does not hold back 
from us. He doesn't just plant little clues along the way. He speaks plainly and he speaks clearly what the future can and could look like for you and exactly how we get there. Folks, the Bible, we come this morning, we open up this Bible, and, and Char did a fantastic job of reading Genesis chapter 3. And we have a big task before us this morning as we talk a bit about Genesis chapter 3. But I want to suggest to you and remind to you this morning that the Bible is not some far away, distant book that's filled with stuffy platitudes. This book is spoken to generation after generation, and it comes to them as it comes to us. It came to them as it comes to us right now exactly where we are. This book is immensely practical for how you live your day today and tomorrow and what your future looks like. Folks, the Bible is tremendously practical. This morning, as we look at Genesis 3, I don't want to be cute. might be hard for me to do anyways, right? <laughs> Amen. The big idea that we see in Genesis chapter 3 is simply this. We, as we sit in here this morning, you and I, we are in need of redemption. We are in need of redemption. Or, maybe put like... The Beatles sang it, help, I need somebody, right? We, this morning, what one thing that brings all of us together, regardless of who you are, what God you may worship, or um, what you believe to be true in this world or in this book, we, what we share in common this morning is every single one of us, regardless of what we bring into this room, is in desperate need of redemption. And that truth comes jumping off the pages as we read Genesis chapter 3. Now, this is an absolutely critical text to really understand not just all of the biblical story, but also all of our human nature. This chapter in Genesis is foundational to our understanding of what it means to be human and what it means to be Christian, right? It is an incredibly monumental passage, okay? So even as I studied it this week, I thought, oh my goodness. I was talking about it just this morning with some folks as we prayed. I could preach maybe 12 different messages, and I feel like I say this every week, okay? But in Genesis 3, it's absolutely true. There is so much here, and it's not just so much. It's so much that is so critical for us to really understand as people, okay? So I want to try to make it easy. Again, I don't want to be cute, I want to make it just easy. I want to give you three words that will kind of guide us as we walk through Genesis 3. The first word is this, taking. So if you're writing down notes, if you're taking notes, just write this word down, taking. What we see in verses 1 through 7, we learn that mankind in this story, so far everything's been pretty sweet, right? Everything's been good by God's assessment, However, from verses 1 to 7, we see something tragic happens. And it can be summarized by this. God's people transition from being a trusting people to a taking people. They go from being a trusting people there in the garden to a taking people. 
What we find in Genesis 3 is not simply a historical lesson or explanation of what happened, but it's also an analysis of what happens and is happening right now in our lives as well. And this first scene, Satan, the cunning serpent that he is, was able to convince man that though they were placed in the garden, enjoying paradise, now imagine that. Satan, Satan, serpent, the serpent sneaks up on man. Their man is in paradise where it is all good. Everything is good. They are in paradise. And he is successfully able to convince man that it wasn't good enough. That this idyllic setting that they have found, that God has tailor-made for them and him to be together, that it was not good enough. That there was somehow, there was more to living. More for them to enjoy. And the only way for them to experience what life has to offer is if they go beyond God's word. Outside of his will. And take for themselves what it appears that God is holding back from them. Right? With his words, he is able to convince them that there is more to living than what God has for them. And the results, tragic, total disruption. We see this play out in our home every, well, I would say virtually, nearly every night. We see the same reality play out as we gather around our dinner table, right? My wife, or maybe it's me, whoever is cooking that night. Let's just say my wife is cooking. Let's say we're having some wonderfully fresh and amazing Belizean food, okay? And uh, I see this happen with tortillas, especially. When she makes a fresh tortilla, you know, tortillas are really good when they're fresh, when they're warm, right? So you, she, she makes a batch of tortillas, and they get placed on the table. And as the family gathers around, everybody knows that these tortillas are really good, but they're really good when they're warm. Everybody is just waiting to eat the tortilla, right? And so everybody knows, wait a second, you know, there's a, there's a certain protocol, a process that happens before you're allowed to just reach out and start taking food, right? We have to, first of all, wait till mom is at the table. Heaven forbid you start eating food while mother's in the kitchen. No, 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 you don't do that, right? And we haven't blessed the food, right? If we haven't blessed the food, you don't start taking and eating don't do that, right? And so it virtually happens every night, regardless of what's at the center of the table. There is a temptation for my children, bless their hearts, to take, to take, rather than to wait. And when they take, guarantee you, there is some disruption around our dinner table, right? The peace has been disrupted because they are taking rather than trusting that mom and dad want them to enjoy this wonderful food. And if they would simply wait, they will find out that there is plenty of food for everybody, right? But they go from being a trusting child to a taking child, and the result is disruption. Exact same thing that we see in this story. Folks, if we were to just even consider, step back and consider our world and our problems, much of it could be related in a very similar way. That people go from being a trusting people to a taking people. We are tempted and within our flesh 
to not trust the Lord, but to simply take, to go beyond what God says is ours or what God's will is clearly stated for us, right? We want to view life as a life that we live independently. And so if we are independently just sort of living life cut off from God or any sort of other authority that would tell us or guide us on how we should live life, well, then the, 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 the result naturally is that we take and we grasp Oftentimes, what does not belong to us at a time when it has not been given to us. So to see how this kind of plays out, first we see a new character on the scene, and this is Satan, the serpent. Perhaps the best description and understanding that we get in Scripture of who Satan is comes from Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. We know as we read the Bible that Satan, this serpent, is a deceiver of the whole world. And here we see his deception in action. Jesus calls him the evil one in Matthew 13 and the ruler of this world in John 12, 14, and 16. The Pharisees called him Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Paul calls him the god of this age and the prince of the power of air. Folks, to be sure, Satan is not simply a mythological figure. Rather, he is a historical creature, a part of history and a part of our reality. He comes to us in Genesis 3 as the adversary of God and of humanity. And we see a great deal about how he works. We see that the results are tragic. Disruption, right? How does he do it? Well, he's crafty. We see that he is a crafty serpent. We see that in verse 1. And his craftiness is shown by the way he is successfully able to distort God's word. As he engages Eve, he sounds more like a winsome, angelic theologian than the anti-God that he is. He is a lion prowling around, we learn in Scripture, waiting to devour us. But in this passage, he does not appear to be a lion waiting to devour. Look what he does with God's words. As he approaches Eve, he does so with, not with confrontation of an argument, but with the subtlety of suggestion, right? He suggests. Did God actually say? He starts with what sounds innocent enough, a simple suggestion. Just consider, step back and consider. Did God actually say? Perhaps, Eve, you misunderstood what God said. He draws attention to God's prohibition not his provision. This is key. Where God has provided, think about, again, their setting, tree after tree, ideally, God just looked and saw that man was alone and said, it is not good, right? And so he provides for man a partner, right? He, he has just evaluated all that he has made, seen the one thing that, that he could improve upon, did so for man, and, and here man is in this setting, in paradise. But Satan directs his focus on the one thing that was prohibited. Good thing after good thing after good thing. And Satan wants man to focus on the one thing God says, don't do. 
I wonder how true that is of us today, right? If we think about the various ways in our world, in our life, that we are tempted to go beyond what God has said is good and take that which does not belong to us or take that which we believe will give more than what God has provided. Think about how Satan works today in your life, wanting you to focus on the one thing you don't have. Rather than all of the spiritual blessings that God says are yours in Christ Jesus. He wants your attention to be focused on the prohibition, not God's gracious provision. That's how he works. That's how he works today. The effect is that the woman begins then to question not just the command of God, but also God's sincerity, his intention, and also his follow-through. God wouldn't really punish me, would he? God's threat perhaps maybe is empty. All of this leads to a grand twisting of God's word. Satan presents God's word, which the woman only knows to this point experientially to be true, to be powerful, and to be really good. That's her experience. She knows that for absolute certainty. But Satan approaches her and begins to convince her that maybe God's word is really harsh and restrictive. He wants Eve to believe the lie that there is more that this world has to offer us. There is a thrill, a satisfaction. There is a level of enjoyment that goes beyond what God has given to you. Look at what it says in verse 6. It tells us that when Satan had had his way with her, she looked and saw that the tree was good for food. This is certainly ironic, her understanding of what good is previously was rooted in her confidence of God and his word. Well, that confidence has been eroded by this crafty serpent. She has become convinced that there is more out there that will elevate her life. And God, well, he's simply holding back, simply holding back. Folks, again, what's interesting about Genesis 3 is this is not just historical. This is not just telling us what happened, but it tells us what happens. And the parallels to our world as we seek to be obedient to God and his word are just everywhere around us. Well, the crafty and subtle distortion of God's word, Satan wants to move you and I even today, from being a trusting people to a taking people. And just like Adam and Eve, when we no longer take God for his word, we will become takers as well. Next word, I want you to focus on taking. Second word, I want to just point out in verse 8 and 9, this word is home. It's not in the text, but it's helpful for me to remember home. The introduction of sin into the story of man is absolutely devastating. It causes a tremendous disruption in the story to this point. I want to zoom in just on one phrase. After they ate the fruit, 
Their eyes, we are told, are opened. They know, they realize that they are naked. So they fashion loincloths that are made out of fig leaves to cover up their nakedness. And look what it says in verses 8 and 9. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Until the arrival of the serpent, man was in the garden and everything was good. Why? Because man was with God. Exactly how God had intended him to be. He was enjoying God's presence and fulfilling his purpose in his place. Man was at home with God. Before, when God was walking in the garden, as it were, man would delight to be with him, right? Perhaps run to greet him. Maybe you could imagine that the sound of God's footsteps in the garden up until this point would cause man's heart to sing. Now it fills with shame and his desire to hide. Following the introduction of the sin, we find man hiding from God among the trees, cowering in fear, full of shame and naked. Hopeful, perhaps, that God wouldn't notice, but perhaps just move along. And just as his word came to him before, God speaks again. And his words are, where are you? You have not been there before. Wherever man is, he has not been there before. What are you doing? Come out. That is not where you belong. You belong here with me, face to face. Man, where are you? Folks, all of redemptive history is God making a way to be with his people. God with his people. A returning to this idyllic garden where God is with his people, unrestrained relationship and fellowship. From this moment on, this book is filled with how God is going to do that. If you were to think of the tabernacle or the promised land, the temple, even in Isaiah 7 when we learn about this prediction of a Savior coming, he is called Emmanuel, God with us. The word in John 1 that comes to his people dwells among his people. Folks, the garden, this scene before sin's entrance on it is the original temple. And all of redemptive history is God getting us back to that place where we are at home with him. Recently I was talking to, um, actually it was Pastor Gilmore just this week. And he was telling me about an event that he was at. And at this event, he got to meet a, um, another pastor who was serving in another part of Texas. And they, they were just sitting at the same table, and they just began to share just about their different ministries. And, um, and Jeff was saying about, told me about this individual who 
who led this church, and, and the church worked with um, a, primarily the folks that were attending the church were a transient population. They were folks who, many of them were homeless, um, and they, for a variety of different reasons, they were struggling in life. And uh, a lot of them would pitch tents in the neighborhood and kind of live outside. They just, they just didn't have a home. And so when this church started ministry and began to plant a church, one of the natural questions was, what are we going to call our church? Um, and they chose the word home for the church. The church is just called home. The reason they decided to call it home is because many of the people who they were serving, most of the population that they were serving, didn't have a home. And so they thought to themselves, what better thing to do than to name our church the very thing these people want in life. I thought it was beautiful. It's beautiful, right? Well, the truth is, we can maybe sometimes have sort of an illusion of home here on earth. We may not be living in a tent, right? We, we, we may know, we may have a physical address that we return to every day. But the truth is, every single one of us shares the exact same need. It is our, their need is our greatest need as well. We all need to be at home, at peace with God. His word gives life. And here, his word confronts man as he is in need. It exposes man's distance, his lack of home. Comes to man, it exposes his sin, his situation. But it also exposes his inadequacy to do anything about it. I mean, think about how foolish it is. Man there hiding among the trees that God made as if the front of the trees belong more to God than the back of the trees do, right? It's just completely foolish. He can't do anything by himself to remedy his problem, right? His fig tree, his little fig leaves are the best that he can do. In verses 20 through 21, we discover that nothing that man is able to do is able to remedy his situation, is able to get him, by his own strength, back home. And so the third and final word focus on this morning is hope. And, and there's several places in our text where we could see hope begin, even in this tragic, I mean, the curses that follow from verses, uh, from verses 14 on through 19, there is a tremendous amount of curses that, that God levies on the serpent, on the man, and on the woman, right? But in the midst of these, this cursing and this disruption, of peace and this, this distance that has been created now between God and man, we see seeds of hope. And there's several places in the text, but the, the big thing is that we see that while we are a needy people, we also can be a hopeful people. You can see it in verse 15 as, as God talks about the offspring of Eve will eventually crush the head of the serpent. You could look at uh, even the name that Adam gives to his wife, Eve, the mother of living. But the one I want to focus on this morning in verses 20 to 21, and I'll just read those verses real quick, is, is what God does with man's nakedness. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. 
or several promises of hope, but this, this idea of garments of skin that God provides for man and his wife are what I want to focus on. As he provides these garments, God, in his gracious mercy, provides for man garments that are sufficient to cover his shame. Remember, man hiding, that's not going to hide, keep you from God. That's not going to deal with your nakedness, right? The fig leaves aren't going to work. These garments, they are sufficient for the covering of their shame, but they also serve for us a sign, a sign. See, the fig leaves that man fashioned together weren't adequate to cover their sin. They were still naked. These, these people were still exposed. They were still vulnerable. They were still full of shame. They weren't resourced enough to create an adequate covering. They could not deal properly with their sin and shame. But the good news of the gospel is that where our efforts prove inadequate, God's prove abundantly adequate. Where we can't, God can. He makes a covering for them. He covers their nakedness. He covers their shame with garments, check it out, that are made out of skin. The garments, their coverings, are made from skins. How does one get a skin to make a garment? Well, I'm glad you asked, Johnetta. Something has to die for there to be a skin to make a garment. There has to be a sacrifice. Genesis 3 doesn't just tell us, again, what happened to them. It tells us what happens for us. God offers for all of us a covering similar to the one that he offered for Adam and for Eve. He offers a similar covering for you and for me. A covering which promises to restore our relationship with him. To cover our sin and our shame and our nakedness. Allows us to come out from our hiding and to be at home with him. And just like it required a sacrifice... For Adam and Eve's sin and shame to be covered, so too for our sin and shame, a sacrifice is also required. And as we continue to read through the biblical story, we learn that that sacrifice was not simply an animal, like a goat or a cow, but it was God's precious and only son who would give his life who would become completely obedient to the will of God, trusting the Father completely. Instead of taking, he gave. Gave his life. Folks, there is a great reversal that happens in Scripture. In this garden, Adam and Eve, they don't follow God's word. They hide behind a tree, naked and covered in shame. There would be, as we continue to read, another scene set in a different garden where Jesus sets his face and his will to completely obey God's word, which leads him to not hide behind a tree, but rather to hang upon a tree, naked, conquering sin and shame so that you and I 
can be at home with God. It's a beautiful reversal. It's a beautiful reversal. And it's what God offers to us this morning. He wants to move us from being a taking people, a people who are convinced that there is more out there to life that, 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 that this book or our God has to offer. And so we set it on a shelf and we try all that life has to offer, searching for more joy, searching for more satisfaction, elevating our life. And God says, hold up, hold up, trust me. Trust my word. Trust that I am a good father who is giving you in Christ every spiritual blessing that you could possibly long for. And it's because of that sacrifice I am calling you home. So just as he came to Adam and Eve in that garden, he comes to us this morning and he asks the exact same question. Where are you? Just as he comes with his word to them, he comes with us this morning and asks us. He speaks to us. He is a God who continues to speak through his word. He hasn't changed. The question is, will you trust him? Will you take him for his word? This room is filled with people. I guarantee is one of the things I love about this church is that we, we, we provide opportunity and it's very valuable for us to, to interact together. And you will find story after story after story in this room this morning of people who wanted, who thought that maybe there's more than what God would have for us. And so they reached. They tried to take it. And they discovered through a great disruption in their life that God ain't holding back, right? That Satan is a liar and a murderer, and he's got one desire, one goal, and it's to take you down, right? But God provides a gracious, a gracious path for us back to him, and it's through his son. I want to close just by reading. I was just talking with Colin earlier this week about I'm just so tempted to get up and read Romans chapter 5 and just leave. All right? Because Paul zeroes in on what we see here in Genesis 3. It's a beautiful way. I just got to close with this. I had a bunch of practical stuff, but I think I'll just, just leave that. Romans chapter 5. I'm just going to read verses 18 through 19. There it is. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, just like Adam and Eve trespassed, and as a result of that, now we are all condemned. So also one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. It's what Jesus provides for us. He was completely obedient to God, trusted him, gave himself rather than taking. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So folks, this morning, if you are in Christ, you don't have to hide behind a tree, trusting in some fig leaves. How foolish is that, right? God offers you his son. And when you, when your posture shifts from being one who takes to one who receives, the result, righteousness. Your sin, your shame, 
dealt with on the cross. When God looks at you, he sees his righteous, completely obedient, perfect son. So just the question that I want to ask you this morning is where are you? Where are you? Let's pray. Father God, your grace and your mercy, Lord, it is more than we can even fathom. And I pray as we consider even your provision in Genesis chapter 3, Lord, I pray that we would be astounded, we would be amazed at your character, at the fact that we can cross you and you still stand there wanting to bring us home. Lord, we confess that we are a sinful people and we are constantly tempted to take, to question your word, to distort your word, and to take. Lord, we think of all the damage that has been done to us and by us because of this human tendency. Lord, we confess to you this morning that we are a broken and a needy people. And Father, we ask, we ask that you would help us to see the, the glory and the beauty of your Son who sacrificed for us, who died in our place, who covers our sin and our shame, Lord. And I pray just as we ask that question of ourselves, where am I, Lord? I pray that your word would just do what your word does, that it would confront us, it would convict us, and Lord, that it would call us back home to you. We thank you, and we love you. Praise saints in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, brother. Let's stand in response to